His career in the theater spans some five decades, and during that time, he has been responsible for bringing such works as The Lion in Winter, Ain't Misbehavin', Sideshow, The Real Thing, and Master Harold and the Boys to Broadway. But he is perhaps best known for an all-too-rare dedication to the work of a single playwright, having produced every play by Neil Simon on Broadway since 1972, from the Sunshine Boys to the upcoming repertory revivals of Brighton Beach Memoirs and Broadway Bound. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm proud to welcome the prolific and passionate producer, Emmanuel Eisenberg. Hi, Manny. Thank you, Howard. Very nice. Let's start with the relationship with Neil Simon. There's so much for us to talk about today, but tell me how you came to be the producer of Neil Simon. The real truth, if this is for history, is I played on a softball team with Robert Redford in 1959 on a, in the Broadway Show League. And in 1962, Robert Redford and I were friends and still are. He called up and said, you have to play on the softball team this year. I was a pretty good shortstop. Redford was a good first baseman. And Redford was in a play called Barefoot in the Park. It was Neil Simon's first big hit. So Redford played first base, I played shortstop, and Neil Simon played second base. And that's how I met Neil Simon. Were you any good? <laughs> It's probably the only thing I ever thought I was good at. <laughs> uh, I, I played a lot in the Bronx. And uh, and then we were invited to those great Broadway openings of that era when it was in one night, not three nights. And uh, about seven years later, he called up one day and said, come over to the house. We were casual friends. And uh, I came over to his, his townhouse, and I walked in, and he said, how would you like to produce my plays? And I said, I don't know. Let me think about it, jokingly. And he threw a play at me. He said, here, read it. It was The Sunshine Boys, and that was that. I had done a few plays prior to that. Well, you had produced a few plays. At the time you were playing on the ball team, presumably you were company managing, general managing in that period? When I was playing on the ball team in 62, I was working for David Merrick, who's legendary. And uh, and Redford, Redford got paid $300 a week, and I got paid $200 a week in, <laughs> in those days. And... It was an innocent period, and it was a prolific period. I mean, you know, I think I, I was the company manager for Merrick for 17, 20 shows hmm. in, in a three-and-a-half-year period. You just went from show to show. Let's stay with, with Neil. Um, being Having one show thrown at you saying, do you want to do this show, happens. But very often, producers will do someone's play, and the next play that the playwright does, they go back to the producer and say, do you want to do this one? And the producer says, not so sure about this one or, you know, has some quibble. You made some decision that you were going to back this guy. It was relatively easy the first time. And if you look at it historically, it was in that period that, that Neil Simon's wife got cancer and died. It was a major blow to him. Uh, 
But in those days, it, well, what can I say? The There were only two plays that were questionable. One was a Chekhovian play called The Good Doctor, which he wrote as a tribute to his wife because he thought Chekhov was the great writer, and that didn't work. And then he wrote a play in anger called God's Favorite, which I rejected a number of times. I said no, no, which wasn't simple to do because playwrights get angry when you don't like their plays. But it wasn't about liking. It was about whether it was going to work or not. And then I finally said, yes, let's do it. And he looked at me and said, why? It was like a stunning, real, dramatic moment. And I said, because I think we'll exercise it. Remember, things didn't cost $3 million then. They cost $200,000 then. So we did it. It failed. The original director, by the way, was Michael Bennett. And, and the next play was a success. So if there is a moral to it, it's you take the good with the bad or the good with the not so good or the wonderful with the good and then the not so good. Uh, and ultimately, Howard, in those days, we also thought it was it was only money. But it was also, as the title of one play goes, in some cases, other people's money. And were you able to get backers to understand that uh, that they were yes. supporting? Was were the same people first, involved? First of, in those all, first of all, he put up most in the in the in, uh, early days. He put up all the money. Then oh. he put up a lot of the money. He always put up his own money. So he he bet on his own horse. There were enough winners to keep everybody happy and some big winners. So, for example, Brighton Beach originally was $500,000. It, it made $8 million. So if you were an investor, you did pretty well. And if you lost $100 the next time, it was okay too. <laughs> and... In truth, even some of the ones that are disregarded was, were economically successful. A play like Jake's Women, for example, made money. A play like I Ought to Be in Pictures made money. Uh, he didn't have too many financial losers, but it wasn't judged that way. It was judged in much more artistic terms. He always wanted it to be good, always wanted it – he didn't care – about whether it was financially successful. He had an, he was, frankly, rich enough. And then he ultimately got to the trilogy, which I'm... And, and Lost in Yonkers, the trilogy of Brighton Beach, Broadway Bound, and, uh, and Biloxi Blues, which I think will, will last. I think that they will transcend time. Hmm. With him putting up his own money, especially in the early days... And being the writer, he wielded enormous amount of power, presumably, over his shows in a way that few playwrights do. August Wilson famously kept control of his plays and was involved in the production of them. For you as a producer, what was your role and what, what power did you have in the partnership? Well... Firstly, the director had an enormous power. It was Mike Nichols. So Mike Nichols is formidable. And if you hire Mike Nichols, you give up much authority to that director. And then there was Gene Sachs, and there were fights. But it wasn't 
Neil didn't wield the power. The producer had something to say as an objective aesthetic. I hate to use that word, but... Example. I'll give you an example. When we did Broadway Bound, initially, there's a famous scene in Broadway Bound where the mother dances with the son. That scene did not exist four weeks before rehearsal. We had a reading of the play, and there was another scene in its place. I, I, during the reading, I turned to Neil and said, it's no good. And he said, I know, I'll fix it. Two days later, he, re he wrote that scene of the mother dancing with the son. If you see that play now, you'll wonder how you could have conceived of doing the play without that scene. And then you realize that part of your job as a producer was to recognize what your playwright can and cannot do. And in this case, as it is with most of the good playwrights that I know, he's intuitive and talented. So you tap into the intuition and the talent and know that it will be done. You bet on that future that he will deal with the problems that exist in the play. There were times in there was screaming and yelling, but nobody left the room. So let's jump forward to the idea of performing Brighton Beach Memoirs and Broadway Bound in repertory. Who first said, let's my, do that? That's my idea. And, I'll, I'll live with it. Okay. When did, you, when did you first think to do that? Is that something that you've harbored since they were first written? I've always thought, no, not when they were first written because th there was no intention of writing uh, subsequent plays after Brighton Beach. Brighton Beach was an enormous success. I think it's, I mean, you probably have the record, somewhere on the 11th or 12th longest-running play in the history of Broadway. Hmm. And the public loved it. The public loved it on the road all across America. And then he wrote a play, Biloxi Blues, which does not use the same cast. It's Eugene Morris Jerome in the Army. And then he wrote the third part of what then was becoming a trilogy, and he went back to the family... So they're the same act, virtually the same actors in one play as in, Black, in Brighton Beach as there is in Broadway Bound. Well, it's very practical. It's very attractive to actors to play two parts instead of one part. It's very economically feasible to have one set for two plays. All of that was apparent to all of us. And in truth, I thought that if these plays were ever to be done, if a play a revival is ever to be done. You can make it an event by having both. If you just did one, it's a revival. If you do both, it's more interesting. It's more interesting for the actor. It's more interesting economics. And hopefully, it's a victory lap for the playwright. You said earlier that the director has a lot of power. The decision to engage David Cromer to be the director of these shows. He's not a director who, at least here in New York, certainly has done Neil Simon's work. Um, how did that decision come about? The, the truth was that he was number two on the list. And number one, I couldn't make a deal with. And so <laughs> number two was David Cromer. I had watched this career from the picnic he did in Chicago and uh, Glass Menagerie and Adding Machine 
And it was always interesting. And more importantly, and and the Our Town that was in New York, but Our Town hadn't opened yet, is that he did something that skewed those classics slightly. So you see them differently. So you see David Cromer's Our Town, it's as if you hadn't seen it before. There's something different about it. Well, I think Brighton Beach, which everybody recalls as Matthew Broderick, and it's a comedy, there was much more of a play in there than anybody ever knew. But it was too charming. This one will have a little bit more gravitas. Hmm. So Cromer, this is his Broadway debut. He's a, he's a good guy, by the way. Is there any temptation to tweak the plays with, in that they are going to be seen, certainly by some audiences, as if they were created to be companion pieces? No. Oh, uh, so the companion pieces? No, they're not. They fit mm-hmm. organically. The there are no rewrites. Plays are not classics if you have to rewrite them. Hmm. And I think these are, are classic American plays. I think one depicts the '30s, one depicts the '40s, post-war, and the beginning of an era in America. And I think, uh, I think if you see them, you'll see that they are without. Without prejudice, first-rate depictions of the the Depression era and the the beginning of an era in America subsequent to the Second World War. I think, frankly, that the combination of them is is superior, for example, to Awake and Sing. What's the actual time period between the two plays? Because they're not contemporaneous. Probably 10 years. It's a little vague. Mm -hmm. They were not written that way. But one takes place in late 1937, and the other takes place subsequent to the Second World War. And consequently, some of the roles, the same characters, are played by the same actor, but there were decisions made that other roles would be played by other by, the, by the different actors. They're all played by the same actor with the exception of one, the boy at 15... And the boy at 23, let's say, we couldn't find the actor who was credible at age 15. We found a number of people credible in their 20s, but not one who could be 15 and 23. And we didn't do it originally either. You know, Matthew Broderick was the original young one, but Jonathan Silverman played it um, on Broadway Bound the first time. Huh. Well, we've leapt into the thick of your career. Let's go back to talk a bit about how you got into theater. I, I grew up in the Bronx, uh, a New York kid, and I had an uncle who was an actor. His name was Wolf Barzell. And he worked in the Yiddish theater. He also worked in plays with Ethel Barrymore and John Garfield and the group theater. So my sister and I always went to the theater. It was very accessible to relatively poor people. We always knew about it. I never thought of it as a vocation. I, I thought it was too much of a struggle. And, and part of my obligation growing up in the Bronx was not to live in the Bronx, was to move. But then I went into the Army. I was uh, an infantry lieutenant in a, in a real unit. And when I came home, I was old enough to know that I didn't want to work anymore. I wanted to work in the theater. So, and the pressures to uh, 
to be successful with diminished. My father understood. And uh, so I started to work. The first, I was an assistant to a company manager on a play in 1959 called The Legend of Lizzie. It ran two performances. Presumably Lizzie Borden, I'm guessing. But but I knew that I could do that job. I found a job that I could do. And in truth, one thing kind of led to another. So I was the assistant company manager, then I was the company manager, then I was the general manager. Remember, everybody in those days, I thought, was a closet esthete. You wanted to work in the theater, and if you didn't act or sing or dance or write or direct, then you did. You were the press agent, or you were the manager, or you were whatever the producer was, which was mystery to me. I think that's maybe why I survived, because I I was not perceived as ambitious. You said you thought everybody was a closet aesthete, which suggests that not everybody was. No, I think everybody was a closet aesthete, because you didn't choose to work in the theater if you could make a living in real estate or in something else. If, if your goal was to make a living, that's not why you went into the theater. You went into the theater because of the theater, because of what was on the stage. If there's an implication in what I said is that I don't think it's true now. Aha. Uh-huh. Before we started taping this, you were talking about some of the people that you got to work with in those company manager, general manager days before you became a producer yourself. Can you talk about some of some of those people? Because they're, well, they're extraordinary names. Well, the first one was Barbara Streisand in I Can Get It For You Wholesale. Robert Redford in a play called Sunday in New York. Nobody knows about that. Tony Richardson, the famous director, that's Natasha Richardson's father and all the Redgraves and a number of plays with him. Luther, I, I, uh, uh, The Milk Train Doesn't Stop Here with Tennessee Williams and Tennessee Williams was there starring Tallulah Bankhead and Tab Hunter, by the way, is the name. <laughs> And Tennessee Williams and Tab Hunter right Tennessee next to Williams each other. And Tab <laughs> Hunter, right. Uh, truth was, it wasn't very good. But <laughs> but we were in the room, and there was Tennessee, and there was Tony, and and Luther was with Albert Finney. It was an Osborne play. Arturo Uwe with Christopher Plummer. Julie Stein wrote the score, a score for, for Arturo Uwe. That was when Kennedy was shot, and that's hmm. why that play died, actually. It died with the president. The Lion in Winter is the one I produced and general managed with my partner then, Gene Walsk, and that was with Robert Preston and Rosemary Harris, who won the Tony. Then the first production of Hal Holbrook and Mark Twain. Now we're into your producing years. So let me, let me ask you, when did you decide you were ready? You, you earlier spoke of it as in just an easy progression. Um, when did did you decide you were ready to be a producer? It happened, frankly, it really happened by accident. When when we did The Lion in Winter, I was going to general manage it and Gene was going to produce it, but we didn't draw lines. It's not like... Unfortunately, today, the producer has a what? A marketing function. You go to an advertising meeting. But we didn't think in those days that there was a great line between the producer and the management 
That's what you were supposed to do. You're supposed to run your business as well as quietly have some aesthetic appreciation of what... Remember, we did plays that were just written. We didn't see them. We read them. When we decided to do The Line and Winter, it's because we read it. And how did it come to you? Do you recall? Jimmy Goldman, who wrote it, was a friend. He said... We were going to do Jimmy Goldman's play. That's the way it was referred to. Mm -hmm. This was Jimmy's play. Frank Gilroy, Gene Walsh did Frank Gilroy's play. The subject was Roses. This was a group of people that hung out together. Redford and Jimmy Goldman and Bill Goldman who wrote Butch Cassidy and Dustin Hoffman. And there was a good poker game with Carl Reiner. I mean, there were your contemporaries. Some were older, certainly. And Hal, when Hal Holbrook came in, Hal was a friend. Nobody, he had done... He toured America, I suppose, in, in a, a station wagon doing Mark Twain. And he walked into the office, which was as big as a small room, and said, you're doing Jimmy's play? Why don't you do me? And I think we put Holbrook on for $35,000 on Broadway in those mm. days. So the difference between being the, quote, general manager and being the producer was not distinguished as far as we were concerned. It was what you were supposed to do. Now, the two really compartmentalized positions. Hmm. Why do you think they've compartmentalized? That's a loaded question. I know. Howard Sherman. Because there are many people who are named producers now who were you would, in the old days, have been called investors. But as the price of doing these shows have skyrocketed, if I said to you we did the the lion in winter, that, that's a that's a big play. It costs one hundred fifty thousand dollars. If you were to do that play now, it's three million dollars. Hmm. Well, I could, go and that's out. a five actor show. Six actors, six so, actors. Okay. One, yes. But we did uh, a black musical called "Ain't Supposed to Die a Natural Death" for one hundred twenty-five thousand hmm. dollars in in the same year. Uh, so you raise money from friends at the rate of $1,000 a piece or $1,500 or something like that. Now you have to get $60,000 for a unit. Hmm. That's a major difference. So you have to spread your wings and take in a lot of money and access to money, people. And over the last 20 years, they've evolved into being those billed above the title, as you well know. And that's why sometimes when – and the winner is 38 people get up and make that charge down the aisle for the Tony. We ridicule that. There's a, there's a value to it, obviously, because that's you're not going to get anything on unless you have the money for it. But I think I would like a new title, put it that way. <laughs> Let's have come up with something else mm. other than producer. We'll call it something else. Create it for me, Howard. <laughs> not, not so easy. Not so easy. Um, you mentioned earlier that you you worked with David Merrick, who was yes. a famously uh, uh, a famous let's say, just say famously a showman in all the the good and, and bad of that. He was, was that kill, an he easy was a killer. experience? I didn't have a hard time. He kept me busy. Uh, you were afraid of him. What do they call him? The Abominable Showman? That's the name of Harry Kissel's book about right. him. Uh, but 
It's where I learned everything. There were only 20 of us, and there was a time when there were nine shows, 12 shows on Broadway, and God knows what on the road, and it was just us. So you learned what was real and what was a mystique, and and whatever evil he was, he had taste. Hmm. And he knew it wasn't about him, even though it sounded like it was about him. If you take Gower Champion and Tony Richardson out of the mix, you would not have heard of David Merrick. Hmm. And he knew that. Sometimes when you work with someone, especially when you're young, somebody who can be tough, you learn both what you want to do and what you don't want to do if you get to do it yourself. Was, was that the case with Merrick for you? In, there's, uh, there's a lot of truth to that. You'd have to have a greater sense of amorality to do what Merrick did. God knows what drove him, but he was driven. That The amorality, I would like to think, and I hope is true, is that that was too difficult for me. I think my father would not have approved. And then you had to do... You had to make honorable choices. Merrick made... Merrick, that's how, why he was, he was well-known, is it's just he could... There were no restraints. He went after your throat... It wasn't about being fair. It was about who had the leverage. Mind you, there were people who who just stood up to him and mm-hmm. laughed. Gower Champion was one. Tony Richardson was another. Tony got whatever he wanted. Hmm. That's how I got to do the shows, is he picked the stage manager, he picked the company manager. He said, no, I want him, I want him, and I want him. And so we could go about our business knowing Merrick would concede to Tony and to Gower, although there was a f- number of fights that uh, were... Legend, <laughs> legendary. <laughs> As I peruse the multiple pages from the IBDB of all the shows you've been involved in, there are relatively few musicals. And I'm wondering whether, again, is that was that an aesthetic choice or a business choice? Well, if you do Neil Simon's plays, we have a couple of musicals in there also, some that worked and some that didn't. Uh... I always felt that there were enough musicals. You have to do what interests you. If, if I made choices, I made choices that were visceral to me. So I would have cared about The Wiz, which I had a lot to do with. I cared about Sideshow. I cared about moving out. I didn't want to do frivolous musicals. I mean, I, I don't want to have a an attitude of uh, that I didn't want to get paid. No, I wanted to get paid, but it wasn't worth it doing a musical that didn't move me. Hmm. So they were unattractive, and uh, and maybe I didn't know how to pick them. I would not have been. I picked the ones that that interest me. One one or two I did out of greed and failed. There are a couple on the list which I will not name, <laughs> but I did it out of opportunism and it didn't work. There were a couple of plays there too. When you talk about shows that didn't work, um, when you're producing, and I'm, I will name a couple, and you can maybe. The, and, and when I say not work, they may have worked artistically, but didn't ultimately work commercially. Um, 
I'm looking at Fools. I'm looking at Einstein and the Polar Bear, to, pick, to name two. Good choice. Fools was a, a Neil play, a Neil mm-hmm. Simon play. It was originally called The Curse of Kolyanchikov. Neil wanted to write a play that was similar to a Shalom Aleichem Helm story, and it didn't work. I mean, it was fun to do, but in the case of Neil Simon, you commit to the author, and you have to get through some of those plays. The theory behind it of people who were silly... I think we did that in a, in, a, in a political climate, too, that was a commentary. But it, it, they simply didn't work. And we should say, for those who don't know, it was the beginning of the Reagan presidency. I'm Is not that sure, what you're man. pointing to? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. It, I've got the dates. It was. Then it was. <laughs> uh, so there, were, there, was, there was a context for the plays that... Remember, these were all original. Right. So you don't know what it is. And sometimes at a reading, you can be fooled because it was funny. It just didn't have enough gravitas. The Einstein and the Polar Bear, I liked. I read it again. I actually have a class at Duke, so I, I, and I give it to the students to read. And you get a mixed response, which is what we got when we did it. But it spoke to me. It's about loneliness. It's about, actually, it's a metaphor f- for J.D. Salinger. Uh, about St. J.D. Salinger, about a guy who's successful and then just walks away and lives in New England. Well, I didn't choose the play because I didn't like it. You don't commit to spending six months of your life and raising the money and for something you don't like. Right. I liked it. It didn't work. The ones that I, that I regret are the ones that I really wasn't crazy about, but somebody else said it was good. But but let me ask you the question. The reason I, I raised those purely as examples um, is in your role as a producer, how do you deal with a show that hasn't worked or af- after it's all come together, it's not there? Do you try to make a go of it? Do you – are you the practical person who just has to say – well, a couple Enough. of them we closed right away. Yeah, Einstein and the Polar Bear closed right week. away. Uh, Division Street about three weeks. Division Street was one that somebody else said was good, and mm-hmm. it was one of my regretful evenings. Uh, nothing. There was nothing wrong. It was. It was also political, but I wasn't crazy about it when I saw it. But I was there with other people who said, "No, this is terrific," and. Um, I suppressed my instincts. The, uh, there's another one, Devour the Snow, which is about the Donner Pass, which closed a lot of young actors. I remember commiserating with them right after the notices came out. If you get a bad notice on a straight play in the Times, you're doomed, unless there's a superstar in it. And I remember, what do you do? You know that you're going to close on Saturday night. So you go and you hug all the actors and you tell them that that's, they're wonderful and they did a good job and they did. And then they leave the room and you're alone. Fortunately, my two daughters were there and they comforted their father. Hmm. It's sad. Those are painful. And, but none of those plays, not, not Division Street, but were chosen because I didn't 
like them, whatever like would mean, or I didn't think that there was something there that could be expressed. One of the things that, that the producer, you can give the producer credit for, for the old days, and perhaps even today, not perhaps, but truly today, but it's a little bit more complicated today, is that these plays were expressions of the producer. If this is what I read... This is what I want to produce. I don't want to produce play one or play two, play three. No, number four. And if it's The Lion in Winter, well, look, Howard, examine what The Lion in Winter is about and then examine what the five other plays subsequent to that and then you put together an abstract picture also of the producer. Hmm. This is what he chose to do. If he chose to do garbage, one, you would be out quickly but if you chose to do The Lion in Winter and The Investigation and The Real Thing and Master Harold and the Boys, and then you get a picture of somebody that at least has some need or substance or expression or need for expression. But when you talk about it in that way, it brings the, que- brings the question of was there ever a show that you did that you said, I love this? I'm not sure everyone else will, but I'm doing it anyway. Without question. Can you give me an example? Sideshow. Let's talk about Sideshow then. Sideshow's musical I still think is wonderful. And it had my soul in it and my and everybody connected with it will remember it as one of the on the resume of their soul. How's that? Mm-hmm. Uh we knew it was dicey. You know, if I said to you, I'm doing a musical about Siamese twins, you'd say, Manny, get out of my office. But, and I still love it. I still think it's, and, and somebody will do it in some way in the next 20, 30 years, and it'll be successful. I don't think you can sell a mu- you could sell a musical that says that it's about Siamese twins because the image of Siamese twins is two people's heads stuck together. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that was... Not what was on the stage, and it was metaphorical. And but the score is wonderful. The, sto- the story is heartfelt. Do you think it was? Also did La Boheme, yeah. you know, and I loved that too. I would watch that third act every night. Sticking with Sideshow though for a minute, do you think that Sideshow came at a time when the definition of what could be a musical hadn't expanded sufficiently in the minds of enough theater goers? Or was it simply the idea of a show about conjoined twins? I I don't have a, a I only have an opinion. I don't I don't know whether so that's all I can valid, ask you. and I think it's conjoined twins. You really think so it's it's that topic. Listen, I went to see Next to Normal, right? Mm-hmm. Which is about a manic depressive or what do we bipolar person? Mm-hmm. Who would think you'd get away with that? It was good, mm-hmm. and it's running. So, nineteen. When did we do Sideshow? Nineteen ninety-six or something like that. It didn't work. It. I play the score once a year by myself in the car, and the tears still come down. And Alice Ripley, who was in Next to Normal, was also in Sideshow. Everybody remembers it as something that um, probably deserved some a little bit more success. It didn't have to be successful. We just wanted it to run. So those choices that had no economics in it. Did you ever have something 
succeed that you didn't think was going to. Oh yes. <laughs> so 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 what was your biggest surprise? Who knew? I mean, I didn't think, for example, that Neil Simon's dinner party would be successful. I didn't think that would work, and it was. Uh, I'm trying to think of what what. Well, I'll go look at the list. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> well, we'll come back around. Um, let's go off of the specifics of the shows because I want to. I want to talk about something else that's been a part of your life for a very long time. You have taught in arts management programs first at Yale and then for well over, I believe, twenty years at Duke. Twenty-five years. And. I wanted to ask you, as somebody who didn't have the benefit of, of ever being in one of your classes, what do you say to a class of producing students, of aspiring arts managers? <laughs> What's your opening salvo? What, what, what do you want them to, to know, to think, to learn? Well, I, I hate to do this to you, Howard, but I don't teach that course. Arts management... I, uh, I'm not saying the course, but no, the kids who I'll are you, in I'll that kind of a program. Is. Yeah, the course is the course initiated at an experience in Yale when I gave the Yale graduate students Brighton Beach memoirs to read before we did it. It's pertinent right now, actually, funny. And they found it odious and loathsome. It wasn't. It wasn't Chekhov. It wasn't Strindberg. It wasn't Ibsen. And this was frivolous, and it was dismissed. Except for one girl who came up to me after the class and said, I really liked it, but I was afraid to say so. Oh, boy. Then the play opened and was this enormous success. So being vindictive, I went back to the class and told them that they have just made a judgment. They all would like to be me, but they've just made a bad judgment on what will probably be one of the most successful comedies ever written on the, for the American stage with an opinion of odious and loathsome, which I don't even think you had. I think you're spitting back other people's opinions. None of you have ever seen a good Chekhov, Strindberg, or Ibsen, and yet you're advocating it. Because you've been told yes, that's exactly. what's good. So it's... I said, you are not the brightest kids in America if that's your attitude. You're at Yale, but you've given that up. And now you're going to have to defend it for the rest of your life. So you're going to keep doing this. You're going to keep telling me about all these things, having no visceral response to it at all. So I began to rip the pages off the plays that I gave him, new plays to read. Now you know, don't know who wrote anything. It's not Neil Simon. It's not Chekhov. It's not anybody. Now write a visceral response, the way we really go to the theater. When we make noises, we go, yuck, if I hate it, or you go, hmm, boy, was that good. It's not literate, it's not literary, but it's truthful. And that's the course that I taught at Duke. I would rip the pages off, and I'd give them plays. Some of them are old, a lot of them are new, a lot of them haven't been done. You can't look it up on the Internet. And hopefully the students would evolve into having a genuine opinion. And it could be, I don't know. I give them the real thing, and you're 20 years old, it's very hard to discern that play. And it's perfectly all right to say, I don't know. Don't tell me you hated it. Simply say, I don't know. Hating it without understanding it is called bigotry. 
So by the end of the semester, hopefully, we have a number of kids who actually have an opinion, and they recognize that that opinion can evolve from age 20 to 25 to 30 to 40. Mozart got better from age 12 to 20 for me, for example. Hmm. The music didn't change. So that was the purpose of the class. I do not encourage people to go into the theater. Uh, I don't think that's my place. And I also don't want to, in any pedagogical way, convince them to go into the theater subtly. Hmm. So I'm actively saying no. If they go, they go. You know, people who spend $200,000 to get an education, parents are terrified. And then after seven years of school, they turn around and say, yes, I want to be an actor. And I'm no, I, I don't want to be the guy that gets killed for that advice. But I also think it's... Um, you have to do it by yourself. You don't. You don't need to be encouraged by, by outsiders. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I have three dancers in the family and uh, and a musician, but of and, my of my children. And the head of STC is my oldest daughter. Yes. Yeah. So um, you may not have encouraged people, but you sure <laughs> you sure set an example. Obviously, that that drew them to it. What can I say? Yeah. Yes, that's true. I have, uh, of my four daughters, three are in the dance world and one directs, and the son is a classical musician. Hmm. One orthopedic surgeon would have been preferable. (laughs) (laughs) Coming back again to the the class at Duke, because I find this very interesting, your class was a class about aesthetics. Your class was a class about conviction of opinion. How did you come to decide that that's what it was going to be? Was that what you were engaged for originally? Yeah. I did it. I started it actually at NYU before Yale because I went to NYU. Then I did it as a lark at Yale. And my number two daughter went to Duke. So I went down to visit. And they said, would you like to teach a class here? And I said, if I can teach the class that I want to teach, and they said, sure. Hmm. And I told them, and they said, that sounds good. It's not deconstructive or deconstruction. It was, uh, I think it became kind of a well-known class at Duke. Well, it's well-known beyond. If you think about it, it's a good idea. Yeah. The kids become confident in their own opinion. They don't have to make it up. They're confident in being able to say, I don't like Jackson Pollock because I don't understand it, or this Hindu myth is complicated, or I, I like Sondheim, but I don't like this. And it's perfectly all right. Tom Stoppard writes plays about the relative value of everything. And they read those plays as well, that it's okay. Tom Stoppard doesn't like classical music. He likes the crystals and the ronettes. Hmm. And he's Tom Stoppard. Tell him he's not smart. Hmm. Over the period of time that you taught, did you see a change in the students and how they looked at work? I'm not talking within a given semester, but did you see from the 80s when you started, you know, till now, did the sensibility of the students change over that time? Well, they did get younger. (laughs) (laughs) From the 80s to now, they got shockingly younger. Do I think the sense that, yes, I think there is a difference in the last 25 years. Uh, with, in, in, not in a totally rude way, 
but a greater sense of entitlement. We have this middle-class entitlement kid, less urgency. Uh, you know, people would go to Europe after saving up money for years. Now they go to Europe on the weekend. I mean that metaphorically, but um, I think there's a difference in, in general in the country. Mm-hmm. A, um, also, with the, de- with the financial crisis that had just happened, there are more terror in the streets right now. The kids that were going to go into the uh, investment banking world that wore those pinstripe black suits for interviews at every college in America, those jobs aren't there anymore. So that might actually, wind, in the long run, be a good thing. I think that it's a good question, but you can extrapolate that out over 40 years rather than 25 Hmm. and or maybe 50. And then you discover that that my generation, your generation actually had better choices to make. Hmm. Let's talk about another issue over time, which is the change – in Broadway. You mentioned early on uh, William Goldman and you mentioned Butch Cassidy, but the moment I hear William Goldman, I say the season. A picture of what Broadway was, a book in which you appear uh, as one of the many, many characters of Broadway in that season. What have you seen as changes in this business over those 40 years for good or ill? The major one is that all of those writers of Bill Goldman and Jimmy Goldman's era, we they used to aspire to Broadway, that they would have a play on Broadway and, God willing, a hit on Broadway. All of their children and the next generations are writing screenplays. Frank Gilroy, who wrote The Subject Was Roses, is Danny Gilroy's father who did the Bourne pictures among others. So we did not nurture our playwrights. We, meaning everybody, I'm not blaming anyone, I'm just saying an industry did not really take care of its future. And we have messed up that equilibrium that Broadway was between money and art. If you look at it historically, Williams and Miller and Inge and Osborne and Radigan and Maum and Jerome Kern and Rogers and Hammerstein, Rogers and Hart and Yip Harburg and Harold Arlen and Irving Berlin and George Gershwin and Cole Porter. That's a hell of a list. What is it now? You can't name, you can't give me 20% of that list. So something happened and there's Two things I think happened. One is the advent of film and television and screens for money as well and the diminishment of the the theater, the economics of the theater as well. It's much more attractive to go to California and, and you get $35,000 a week for writing for Hee Haw or whatever is going on. You... It diminishes your aesthetics and your expression, but you have a home in Bel Air and a and a Mercedes. If I went back only as far as Chorus Line and said the top ticket price, Howard, in Chorus Line was fifteen dollars. It's now God knows what. What, two hundred and fifty dollars, three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars? We have that equilibrium. 
that allowed for the artist to make a living has been shattered. I don't think it can be reestablished. I think there's hope. It's hope that five artists come together and say, no, we want to create a national theater on 27th Street in New York, and we'll divide the money a little differently. And it'll be shared. It'll be a little bit, pardon the expression, socialistic, also a little bit more honest, uh, so that we might have the queen of the arts, the theater used to be the queen of the arts. Those names made it the queen of the arts. Hmm. It's not about producers. It's not about theater owners. It's got to be about the arts. The genre of Broadway probably ended. I know we don't want to hear that, but it probably ended somewhere in the 60s and 70s. The era of, of songwriters and the era of nightclubs and the era of ballroom dancing is over. And what substitute for it is probably more tourist attractions and theme parks. That's sad. I don't think the not-for-profit world has picked up the slack. I think they do a decent job on occasion. Well, that was a question I was going to ask you, because if you cite the 60s and 70s as where you see things as beginning to, to trail off... That was the rise of the regional not-for-profit theater in America. So was it that they in some way shifted the balance? It was, it no, was, they were responsible for it. They, mm-hmm. they, are, they are an outcome of it. The, the balance shifted. They pick up some of the slack. But in this society, you have to get paid. You can't pretend it's not for profit. You can't ask an actor to come and work in New York for $400 a week and think he's really going to stay. And it's not substituted for by doing uh, an eight-week run on Broadway or at the Manhattan Theater Club or anywhere else. So if a big star says, I will do a play, it's wonderful. They're going to come and do a play. What about the seven other actors that are in the show? What do they do for the rest of the year? That regular person who has to pay the rent and isn't coming here after doing a $4 million movie. So they come, they get a job for, what, three months at four, $500 and four weeks of rehearsal? And then what do they do in the fifth month? So what Broadway achieved is that anyone who got a job in those days, if you were in the chorus, you could pay your rent. That equilibrium, if, I had a, if, if we were on television, I, that balance mm-hmm. between money and art was achieved Accidentally, indeed. Nobody set out to do it. But between all the forces in the theater, which would include the theater owner, the producer, the guilds, the dramatist guild, the the director's guild, the unions, all vying for the same dollar, it had to be balanced. You had enough force on every side to argue every point. Well, you know, it would take another hour on on the radio and television to describe what it is that's happened... But it's unbalanced now. So there is money being made, but it's distributed incorrectly. In that the artists themselves are not getting enough. Absolutely. You mentioned the idea of you hope there might be a national theater. There's been a dream of a national theater in America going back 
You could even go back to perhaps the WPA days and say there was always talk of a national theater in America that's never really come to be, you know. The national theater in England was achieved by Gilgood, Richardson, and Olivier. They didn't have to do the, the paperwork. They said, I think we should have it. And they had it. Artists created it. Mm -hmm. So when Meryl Streep and Matt Damon and Kevin Spacey and four others decide that we should have a national theater, it's irresistible. It'll happen. If if we got seven or eight of those people to say yes, and I'll do one play every three years, it would happen. No subscriptions. Not not the the you change the equation. It's not the not for profit equation. It's not the for profit Broadway equation. It's something in between, with no distractions. No arbitrary charges and a reasonable ticket price. It's, it's, it's not complicated. You just have to want it, and it has to be driven by artists, not by managements. <laughs> and that comes from a 75-year-old man just said that. Let me ask you about a few of – because we've been talking thematically now for a while. So let me come back and ask you about a few of the recent productions um, yes. that you've been involved in. Um, you mentioned La Boheme, which um, you, know, you said you loved going to the third act of that. That in some ways was a very unusual idea to present a classical opera on Broadway. Granted, an exciting director, a young and attractive cast. Um, what what drew you to it other than the material itself? I saw a tape of the Sydney opera production of mm -hmm. skinny people singing, skinny young people singing La Boheme. Baz Luhrmann directed it. It was not doable. Nobody was interested until Moulin Rouge, the film, won the Academy Award. And then Baz Luhrmann became a hot item. And, and we got it on. And it would have been economically okay, but we went to war in Iraq. It was very expensive. Hmm. God bless him, Baz uh, had no limit. If it hadn't worked, I would have had to probably sell my children. But but and and it did pretty well. And then it had stopped doing well because we went to war and tourism stopped. And in fact, business on Broadway went for two months went into total garbage can. Hmm. But that was the the impetus for that. Also. La Boheme is La Boheme. It's not that it hasn't been here for 120 years. You know, it's it, it may be the beginning of the musical theater. Regular people, they're not kings and queens and whatever. Then, and, and after all, we did it with the guys who produced Rent, which somehow has its essence in La Boheme, doesn't it? Well, my next question was going to be about Rent. You general managed Rent. In this, no, no, according no. to the IBDB, no? Yeah, yes, according to all of that. But it wasn't, uh, yes, so there's some truth to it. It's Jeffrey and Kevin, who were the producers, used to work for me. And this was their first show. They said, would you help us out? Hmm. So I said, sure. The truth is, it's not my kind of music. Uh, but I brought my oldest daughter, the one, the director one, 
to a workshop, and I said, Karen, is this good? She said, it's good, Dad. I said, okay, it's good. And <laughs> so I, 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 I helped them out. But they are, they're the producers of it, and and I was kind of happy that there was some kind of continuity between a younger generation and an older generation because they're friends. Hmm. So when you say you helped them out, just with advice, with guidance? I made all the deals for them. Okay. No, the major deals. They, uh, there are many producers, especially those steeped in theatrical tradition, who will avoid what is generally called the Scottish play at all costs. You are a man who twice in a 10-year period produced <laughs> on Broadway Macbeth. The, the one was a uh, – the first one was a job. Would you help us out? Yes. And they paid me, and that was fine. The second one was commitment. I went to Chichester to see Rupert Gould's production of the Scottish play, and I knew at the end of the first act that I loved it. I thought it wasn't good. I thought it was sensational. And I said I would do it. It took it got complicated because of all the unions and everything else, but I have no regrets about that. I... I I know that play, and I thought what he had done with it was specific and gifted and accessible. And I think every once in a while we get to see a Shakespeare that reminds us of why Shakespeare is great. So I think you have another chance at that right now. The Jude Law Hamlet is first rate. Uh, One of my great life experiences is seeing uh, Peter Brook Lear in the 60s with Paul Schofield. I had seen a number of Lears before, and uh, I had pretended I liked everything because you don't want to be regarded as a fool. This one was not good. It was next to death of a salesman. If I had to pick two experiences in my life, it would be Lear and death of a salesman. Mm -hmm. And that's genuine. It's not... You know, it's not artificially made up. And I only discovered yesterday that you're involved in the revival of Ragtime that's coming to Broadway. Yes, I didn't like the first one, and I went down to Washington as a courtesy to some people who were connected with it, and I was crying at the end of it. My wife was crying, and the black man next to me was crying, and my wife laughingly said, so I thought you were going to retire. And I said, it's good, isn't it? And she said, yeah, it is, so... It's it's not any more complicated than that. It was, you know, then maybe I'll retire afterwards. And you'll keep asking me this question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say you're going to retire. You're doing that. You're involved at Ragtime in the midst of doing these, these Neil Simon plays. And I even read there was a point a number of years ago where you said you were ready to start fading out and you, you keep coming back. It's a contradiction and it's one that I'll live with. Uh, it's not hypocrisy. It's It goes back to what we actually originally talked about, is that you choose what you like to do. If you choose that, you can live with the garbage you have to go through to get it on, as well you know, that, that all sorts of complications. And Neil Simon is 82, 83 years old. A victory lap for him with these plays, which I think are deserving plays, and I think they're un... 
unappreciated to a certain extent. And ragtime is the uh, same thing with that musical. We're now in the Obama presidency, and somehow this musical is so current and so moving with such a value system. Actually, all three of those projects have a value system that I would approve of. So I viscerally have no... If they didn't work, Howard, it would be okay. Hmm. I would be disappointed, but I wouldn't be furious because I think they're good, whatever my value system is. It doesn't have to be anybody else's. It's the course that I teach that I liked it. Hmm. You know, when students ask me the question, that's the answer. I say, why did you do it? It made me laugh. It made me cry. What are the two masks? Comedy and tragedy. Right. Over the course of an hour, we have touched on so many plays that you've been involved in, you know, extraordinary pieces of theater, pieces of theater so extraordinary that you yourself have had the opportunity to revive them to success again over the course of your career. I cannot help but ask, was there ever something that got away, something you wish you'd produced or tried to produce and didn't make happen? Or someone else did? Oh, there's someone else did? Oh, yes. Uh, there's one right now. I went to London uh, to see Rupert Gould's uh, Enron. He's got a play in Chichester. Same guy who did the Macbeth. And I couldn't get to do it. I would have, because I thought that was good. There are probably 20 or 30 productions in which I am petty envious of. <laughs> And I, I underline both words. The envious was genuine. The petty was genuine. And you suppress it. It's, it's normal. You, you don't have great altruism. It's you're judged by whether you act on your bad impulse so, or your jealous impulse or your envious impulse. Uh, there are a number of plays that have happened. The Glen Gary that was done recently, I thought, was just crackerjack. And I thought, oh, I should have done that. The original American Buffalo, I should have recognized. Hmm. Uh, History Boys. I would have liked to have done History Boys. Hmm. David Merrick used to have an expression that went, not only do I have to have all the success, but everybody else has to fail. <laughs> So there's a, there's a bad impulse that we all have, competitively bad impulse. And there are a lot of those, but you suppress that. It, it makes you a human being, a good human, a better human being. Well, on that note, I'll say for somebody who keeps talking about retiring, we're very fortunate that you don't. And so I will just say thank you for all of the plays you've brought us, and thanks for talking to me today here on Downstage Center. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheaterWing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter, at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter, as H.E. Sherman. 
If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.